0: All right, well, if you can open your Bibles, turn to Psalm 125. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Thus ends our reading of God's faith-giving word. May all who hear it find that they are like Mount Zion, immovable and abiding forever. When it it comes to the doctrine of eternal security, this this idea that, that once God saves us, that he will not let us go. It's often said that it's easier to teach this to a man than it is to believe it yourself. And what is meant by this is that we can understand this intellectually, but internally, it's difficult for us to feel secure. And the reason we don't feel secure is because when we are in Christ, we become keenly aware of our own sinfulness, of how wicked we truly are. I mean, how many of you have ever asked yourself, am I really saved? Like like if I died today, would would I be going to heaven or would I be going to hell? if I stood before the judgment seat of Christ, what would he say to me? Would he say, well done, good and faithful servant, or would he say, away from me, I never knew you? I think these are some of the most troubling questions that can go through the mind of a Christian. These questions of assurance, these questions of certainty. I mean, we—if you're honest with yourself—we have all, at one time or an, or another, wondered about this, have we not? Every time we sin, there's that nagging little question in the back of our minds: Do I really love Jesus? And yet, when you read Scripture, what you will discover is that you can have confidence you can have assurance. In fact, if you are a believer in Jesus, then then you should have a a security that is unshakable. And that is what our psalm today is all about. It is about the confidence that a, a person can have when he trusts in the Lord. We are now in week six of our upward journey through these psalms of ascent these songs that that are meant to prepare a worshiper's heart as they enter into the presence of the living God. And in these psalms, we have have seen many different themes. We have seen songs of joy. We have seen songs of lament. We have seen songs of God's justice. And we have seen songs of remembrance. In fact, it was just last Sunday in Psalm 124 that, that David encouraged us to look backwards to remember all those different times that the Lord had rescued his people. And now today, in Psalm 125, we transition again. Our psalmist doesn't want us to look to the past, but to the present and to the future. He he wants us to to notice how we, as God's rescued people, can, can rest assured God is going to keep us secure. And so our psalm for today is a, is a song that instills within the believer a strong, strong confidence. And confidence is our psalmist's theme. He, he wants those who, who sing his song to have the assurance that the Lord their God will be able to keep them until he brings about both his justice and his peace. Let me repeat that. Our psalmist wants those who sing his song to have the assurance that the Lord their God will be able to keep them until he brings about his justice and his peace. And this will be seen plainly when we look at the outline of this psalm. Now now in in our first three verses, our, our psalmist lays out three reasons why Those who trust in the Lord can have confidence. In verse 1, our psalmist demonstrates that that the believer can have confidence because God gives to them an unexpected internal strength. He he builds up the believer so that the believer might stand firm. Then in verse 2, he teaches us that we can have confidence because God protects us from outside threats. In other words, he looks after his children the way a vigilant father looks after his children. And then in verse 3, we learn that we can have confidence because God will triumph over the evil from within. God will not allow the wicked influences to remain in his kingdom. And those are our psalmist's three reasons why those who trust in the Lord can have confidence. And yet, our psalmist doesn't finish there. Instead, he goes on in verses 4 and 5, and he then uses that confidence that he has gained in order to pray. And he prays for that glorious future when God's justice will be finalized and his peace will become a reality. And so you can see that that confidence is the theme of our psalmist. He wants you to know that once God has rescued you, once he has brought you safely home, that he will never let you go. You can have confidence that he will guard your life. Let's let's see how this is so. Look at at verse 1. Let's see how God gives to the believer an unexpected internal strength. Verse 1 says this. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Now now the first thing that our psalmist does is he he points out, out to us exactly who these promises are for. They're for those who trust in the Lord. And so the question that we must ask is this, what does it mean to trust in the Lord? We put our trust in many different things each and every day, do we not? And oftentimes we, we do this without even thinking about it. I and mean, when we, you flip the light switch in the early morning, you trust that a, a a broken circuit will suddenly become connected, sending an electrical current through some filament, allowing it to burn hot and bright, giving you the light that you need to see. I mean, that's what you think about when you flip a switch, Right. <laughs> And similarly, when you, when you turn the knob on your bathroom faucet, you believe that the stopper, which is holding the water back, will, will suddenly be removed, allowing a steady flow from which you can now wash your face and brush your teeth. And you have faith that that soap that you use will actually get you clean. You believe that that toothpaste will actually prevent you from getting cavities. And so you do all these little things each and every day even without even thinking about them simply because you have confidence that they will work. That's what trust is. It is confidence in something or in someone. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. It says this: Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You don't cut a hole in your drywall in order to make sure that the circuit in your light switch is connecting, do you? Of course not. You simply know that it is doing this because the light turns on. right? Similarly, you don't drill a hole into your sink faucet to make sure that the stopper has been removed. I mean, that would cause a couple problems if you did that. You just simply know that the stopper is removed because the water flows. You trust in the inner workings because you have seen the outcome over and over again. In the same way, a person has trust in God because there, there is evidence for God all over the place, all around us. There's evidence in his creation. There's evidence in his word. There's evidence in the fact that, that he came to us in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins and then rose again three days later. And in all these things, we have seen both God's power and his goodness. We have seen his might and his love for his people. Because his promises have never failed, we understand that they never will fail. In many ways, he is like Zion, our strong rock in which we trust. But what does our psalmist say? Not not that the Lord is like Zion, but that those who trust in the Lord, those who have such faith, they are like Zion. In, In scripture, there are 169 appearances of the word Zion, it's a word that carries with it heavy, heavy significance. Zion is is the mountain upon which the city of Jerusalem rests. It is a hill made up of, of a solid rock, a, a massive boulder which cannot be moved. And it offered such a strategic vantage point that it was considered by most, but in the ancient world, to be unconquerable. And so in the minds of the Jewish people, Zion was both immovable and eternal and that was why king david turned the turned the, turned the zion into the capital city for his kingdom it, it was a fortress like no other able to withstand almost any onslaught and yet mount zion is more than just a fortress it's more than just a hill it's more than a mountain for it is a place of god's presence it is a place of god's blessing For upon that mount was built the temple of the Lord where where the Ark of the Covenant resided, the throne of God. And so the one who is truly immovable, the one who is indeed eternal, he had made his dwelling place among his people upon this mount. And thus it was upon Zion where the people of God would come to worship. Now, now, Consider all of this. Because of its tangible strength and because of its religious significance, in the minds of the Israelites, Mount Zion was the most unshakable and solid place that there was. Both physically and spiritually, it could not be moved. It was eternal. And with all of that in mind, Now consider once again what our psalmist is saying to us. That those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They are the ones that cannot be moved. They are the ones that will abide forever. In other words, they they possess this unexpected internal strength. But why is this so? Why does a believer in Yahweh become like Mount Zion? For the the same reason that the believer has faith in the first place. Because he he understands that, that he no longer has to rely upon his own strength. Rather, he now relies upon the strength of his Savior. Just as he relied upon him for his salvation, so now he relies upon him for his continued security. I mean, consider your own salvation. I mean, how did it come about? How did God rescue you? What does Scripture teach us? Look at at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so if, if your salvation is not of your own doing, if it is not a result of your own works, rather if it is a result of what God has done for you, then doesn't it make sense that the one who rescued you to begin with will then also keep you? Listen to the words of Jesus. Look at, look at John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. and I will raise him up on the last day. And so who is the one who is doing all the keeping in these verses? Is it not Jesus? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. It's amazing, isn't it? Listen, if if you are in Christ, then you are steady. You are immovable. And not because of any talent or strength of your own, but because of the one who holds on to you. It is because of Jesus that you have become like Zion. And this is why you can have such confidence. Because it does not depend upon you, rather it depends upon God and his strength. Listen, we, we live in a culture where people are constantly flip-flopping. They, they go with whatever is in vogue. If the popular opinion is to turn left, well then they are right there joining into the crowd. And if the crowd changes its mind and, and decides to shift to the right, well then they too will do an about-face. And reality to them has nothing to do with the truth. Rather, it's all about what is acceptable at the moment by the people. Not so for God's people. Not so for those who trust in the Lord. Look Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, by human cunning, by, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You see, God has given to his people his church, the body of Christ, in order that we might mature together and remain steady in him, that we might not be tossed to and fro By the waves. He gave you apostles and prophets in order that they might equip you. He gave you evangelists and shepherds in order that you might become mature. He gave you teachers in order that you might have that internal strength of your own. But it's not just the church which builds you up, for he has also given to you his word. His his unmoving truth that does not change. Look at, look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, did you catch that? <laughs> that the man of God may be complete, Equipped for every good work. It is through God's word that Christ equips you. Giving you that solid foundation upon which you can stand firm and abide forever. God uses his scripture to make you like Mount Zion. But it's not just his church which builds you up. And it's not just his word which makes you strong, but Jesus has also given to you his Holy Spirit. Look at, look at John chapter 16, verse 13. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit is interceding for you. But He does more than that. Look at, look at Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so the the Holy Spirit not only is working in your life, bringing you to maturity in Christ, but he also marks you as his own, guaranteeing that you will receive your inheritance which you are promised in Jesus. Isn't it just amazing, all the gifts that God gives to his children? He has given to us his church. He has given to us his word. He has given to us his Holy Spirit. It's as if he's bound and determined to build us up in Christ, to give us an internal strength. But an internal strength is not the only benefit for those who trust in the Lord. we can also have confidence that God will also protect us from every outside threat as well. Look at verse 2 of our psalm. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now Mount Zion was not the highest point in that region. No, there, there, there were mountains surrounding Jerusalem. There were other peaks that reached greater heights. To, to the east lies the Mount of Olives, which was slightly higher. To the north was lies Mount Scopus, which was even higher than the Mount of Olives. And to the west and to the south lied even more mountains, mountains which are even taller than those. And these mountains, they, they surround Jerusalem, giving the city, a, a natural defense. They they create this terrain that is difficult to tread. And, and any approaching armies, well, they need to be very, very wary because they could have easily been ambushed even before they reached the city. Our psalmist says that the Lord surrounds his people like these mountains. That Yahweh is this wall of protection, not allowing the presence of evil to enter in. And thus his people can walk in confidence. The same is true for us today. If you are in Christ, and you can be confident that the Lord, your God, will put a hedge of protection around you. Look at, look at John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the attitude that Jesus takes with those who trust in him. He becomes their good shepherd. He lays down his life to protect them. He he won't allow the wolf to snatch them up. So what does this mean? Does this mean that if you are a believer, then no harm will ever come your way? Well, no permanent harm. And what is the context of Jesus' words here? The the, the context is about false teachers and their false teachings. You see, the greatest outside danger that you can face has nothing to do with your physical safety. No. What what you really need protection from are all the different dangers that can damage your own soul. The dangers of false teachers and heretical doctrines. The dangers of a sinful culture that wants to drag you into their ways. And that's because your enemy wants you to leave the one true faith and trust in a different God. Trust in a different Jesus. Look at Matthew 24, verse 24. This is what Jesus says For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You see, if your, if your enemy could, he, he would convince every single Christian alive today not, not to worship him, but to worship a false Jesus. If he could enter in and invade, he he would bring you a false messiah. A messiah who would satisfy all your fleshly desires and make you think that this was godly. And yet that isn't possible because of the wall of protection that Jesus has placed around you. He has been surrounding you from the moment he rescued you. And he will continue to surround you until he puts his last enemy under his feet. He will keep you in the faith, he will keep you safe from that outside threat. And so we see that God has given you an an unexpected internal strength, and that God protects you from outside threats. And yet there's one more reason that you can have confidence. And it's because your God will triumph over the evil from within. Look at verse 3 of our psalm. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong." Now the scepter is a symbol for kingship. It is a symbol for authority. And so when our psalmist says that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, he is saying that no wicked king shall rule in God's kingdom. Now now think about that historically. The nation of Israel had its share of wicked kings, did it not? Rulers who had turned their backs upon God and began following the, the pagan deities of the surrounding nations. Plus, there had been other, other times when Israel was under the control of wicked empires such as Babylon and Rome. And so, if that's the case, then, then how can our psalmist say that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. The the key to understanding this is in the phrase, shall not rest. This could be also interpreted as not continue long. It means that God will not allow these wicked rulers to maintain their control. Yes, there had been wicked kings in the past, but they, they could not establish that eternal kingdom they did not remain long. And why? Why wouldn't God allow them to rule long over his people? What does our psalmist say? Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. You see, when when evil people rule, it creates a great, great temptation for the citizens of that nation to turn away from their God. It creates a desire to follow in the path of their leaders. And one just has to read the books of First and Second Kings in order to see this is so. Every time a, a wicked king would rule, the people would follow suit. I mean, just think about our own nation, right? Too long have we had corrupt and wicked men leading us. And what has it led to? It's led to the moral decline of many, many people. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, says this. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And this applies doubly when it comes to men and authority. And yet in God's kingdom, the scepter of wickedness shall not rest. I believe this is still true today. Let me ask you, where is the scepter found in God's kingdom today? Where is the leadership? Is it not found in the men who are leading God's church? The scepter is in the hands of the elders. And if the eldership turns wicked, well, then the odds are that the rest of the church will follow suit. And yet, God will protect his sheep. He will not allow the scepter of wickedness to rest. And he does this in a couple of different ways. The first is through the practice of church discipline, a practice established by Jesus himself. Look at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, put him out of the church. And so Jesus has given to his church a means by which we can correct one another by which we can rescue one another from our sinful selves. And this goes for everyone in the church, including me. Listen, church church discipline isn't just for those who, who don't hold titles. It's also for elders. It's also for deacons. It's for worship leaders. It's for anyone who's standing at this pulpit. If I am in sin... Or if you ever find me teaching a false gospel, then then I need to be brought to repentance just as much as the next guy. And my title shouldn't hold anyone back from doing so. There should be no fear for you to rebuke me. In fact, if you love me, you will rebuke me. Because I will need it. the scepter of wickedness shall not rest Now you may be thinking to yourself, well that's great pastor for a church that does practice church discipline. But what about all those churches that don't? That's a great question. For we do see many churches today that are being led by false teachers and it doesn't seem that that anything is being done about it. And while it's true, while while it seems that nothing's being done about it, I believe that God is working out his own plan of removal. And one just has to look back at the decline of the mainline liberal churches in America of the 20th century to see that this is so. And those were, were the churches that had embraced modernity, right? And in so doing, they had rejected the gospel. And while at the time you saw those churches grow rapidly, where are they now? They're pretty much all but dead. And that's because when discipline did not occur, God had his true believers leave those churches in order that they might find a home in a church where the truth would be preached. And yes, many of those churches are still around, but, but they're only church in name and Christ's true sheep do not attend. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest. But why shall it not rest? What is the point of all this? The the point is that God protects his people from wicked leadership in order that they might not stretch out their hands to do wrong. In other words, God is keeping his people in the faith by rooting out all of these false teachers. If you are his, then he won't allow you to sit under false teaching for very long. Well, our psalmist has now given to us three reasons why we can have confidence. Because God has given us and unexpected internal strength because God protects us from outside threats and because God will triumph over the evil from within. And these things, they they lead our psalmist into a confident prayer, a prayer for both God's justice and his peace. Look at verses four and five. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Even though our psalmist has extreme confidence in the Lord's protection over his life, he still prays for God's goodness to win the day. And why? If he has assurance that the Lord will keep him, then why pray at all? I believe that this prayer from our psalmist has less to do with his asking for God's will and it has more to do with his longing for God's will. In other words, he he already knows the final outcome, but now this final outcome has become his own desire. I mean, consider this man's prayer for a moment. Basically, there are, there are two things that our psalmist requests. the The first is for the Lord's justice. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with the evildoers. In other words, place your blessing upon those who trust in you and then place your punishment upon those who revel in their wickedness. And so it's a prayer for God's justice. And then the second thing we see is a prayer for the Lord's peace. Peace be upon Israel. In other words, let those who who trust in the Lord find the rest that they are looking for. And when you add these things up, what what you are really getting at is a prayer for God to clean house, is it not? Our, Our psalmist wants the Lord to remove from within their midst those who cause defilement and unholiness. And that's because it is only through separation of the wicked and the righteous, that true peace can can be achieved. I mean, consider Jesus' teaching of the sheep and the goats, right? How when the Son of Man comes into his glory, how he will separate the two, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Or, Or look at Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Here we see another parable of our Lord. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in the gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And so this parable, it, it, it describes the state of Christ's kingdom. The enemy will always be sowing his weeds among the weeds. And this is the state of our world, is it not? I mean, until Christ returns, there will always be the upright in heart living alongside those who are crooked. And yet in the end, they will be separated. God's justice demands it. Our psalmist understands this to be the case. He, he knows that the wicked will not stand, but only those who are upright in heart. And yet he prays for this day to come with confidence. Why? Is he not worried that he might be counted among the wicked? That he might be a goat? That he might be a weed? No. He does not worry because he knows that he is secure. And this is not because that he thinks that he is good, but because he knows that his righteousness is not his own. He knows that it is is the Lord who has given to him an unexpected internal strength. He knows that it is the Lord who has protected him from outside threats. He knows that it is the Lord who will triumph over the evil from within. This man has confidence because he trusts in the Lord. And if you are in Christ, then you too can pray with confidence for both God's justice and his peace. And that's because your security is not dependent upon yourself rather it is dependent upon the lord who keeps you in fact scripture encourages you to hope for this day romans 8 says this for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies For in this hope we were saved. Paul tells us that we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for this coming day. And why? Not because of anything that we've done, but because in this hope we were saved. Not we will be saved, we were saved. You see, what both the Apostle Paul and what our psalmists want you to understand is that if you trust in the Lord, if, if you trust in Jesus, then you can stand with confidence on that last day. That you were not saved only for a moment's time. Rather, God rescued you for His own eternal purposes. That you cannot be moved, that you will abide forever. For you have been justified by the blood of Jesus, and Christ himself will keep you safe. He will make you like Mount Zion, eternally secure. And there's no better news than that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day with grateful hearts as we consider all that you have done for us. I mean, not only have you rescued us from our sins, but now now you hold us secure in your arms. You have given to us an internal strength that we did not expect. You've built a wall around us which cannot be breached. You have removed the the scepter of wickedness from among us. And so we now pray with confidence for the day of your son's return, for the day of your judgment, for the day of your peace. Let's fill us with your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.